Well, howdy, Pastor Mark Driscoll here. Thank you for letting me help you learn God's Word. And if you want to learn more, go to markdriscoll.org. I've got a weekly newsletter answering your questions, daily devotions, blogs that are Bible teaching and their orientation, and a small mountain of sermons going through lots of books of the Bible. So join me at markdriscoll.org and we'll help you learn even more of God's Word. You've got a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, verses 1 uh, through 11. And uh, over the course of uh, the next couple of weeks, I want to talk to you about something called Team Trinity. And some of you would ask, what does the church believe? How is it organized? What are the common ways that I can get connected? And I'll start with an illustration, an analogy. Actually, if you guys will bring up the, uh, the photo, I know it's kind of hard to figure out what this is, but actually right in the middle of this building, right under the center of that dome, as we ripped up the old carpet, we found that there was actually an original hole that was drilled and a stake was driven into that hole. And that is literally the physical center of our church building and everything was measured out in circumference from that center. So everything radiates out from that center. Everything is in relation to that center. And that really was the beginning point for the construction of this entire church building. Well, what is true physically is also true spiritually, that our church has a center. It's the place today that will drive our proverbial stake and everything will relate to this center. And that is going to be the love of God as revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'll jump into it in a moment, but in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that some things are of first importance. Uh, what that means is you think of all the information that is available on the earth today, there's something that is more important than everything else, and that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ or the, the love of God as revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So for us, that is the spiritual center and all ministries and all relationships and all that we do will emanate from that center uh, and we're driving that stake today of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, to begin with, I wanna tell you a little bit about um, our church uh, here at the Trinity Church. Our mission is simple welcome, so we want people to come, meet Jesus, know Jesus, be known and loved by God, be known and loved by us, and that includes those who belong uh, to our church family, that includes those that God will send to our church family, as well as a quarter million people that are in the process of moving to the greater Phoenix Valley. And the truth is, this can be a very lonely place to move to. I just recently saw uh, a report and we were one of the top two or three least welcoming cities in America. So that's not the kind of a word you want, but what it means is that, si uh, that the city is very fast growing and it's a brand new city and most people come from somewhere else. And so there's not a lot of long-standing deep relationships and we want to be a church that says welcome. We want to be a place where you can know people, be known, where you can be loved and love. And so our two things are we open our Bibles to learn and we open our lives to love. These are sort of the two pedals on our bike. And so for us, we believe that firstly, we begin with the word of God, that this is the book that God wrote. And that ultimately, as we open the word of God, we receive a word from God and we come to know and meet and become like God. So ultimately we begin with Bible teaching. We tend to go through books of the Bible. And then also we open our lives to love. We believe that the result of studying the Bible is loving relationships, loving God and loving people. And Jesus taught us that those really are the two uh, primary outcomes of rightly understanding the scriptures. And so Sundays we gather together and other times for learning the Bible. And then shortly, we hope, trust and pray to be launching uh, small groups throughout the region that are sermon-based where people get together to do life together and to love one another. 
Uh, in addition to our mission, our name, the Trinity Church, is one that we chose because we really wanted to focus on God and be a God-centered church. And the concept of the Trinity is exclusively Christian. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit, living in perfect eternal union and communion, loving and relating to one another. And that's our God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. You'll hear a lot about the Father, Son, and Spirit. We love each of them equally. And uh, in addition, practically speaking, um, my wife, Grace, uh, she was born into a church called the Trinity Church when she was a little girl. And it was a church that was planted by her mom and dad, uh, Gibbon Linda, before she was even born. And so she was the youngest of three girls and born into this church. Her dad planted the church. It was a small church up in the Northwest. Uh, he pastored there for 40 some years faithfully. And so um, when it came time to name the church, we wanted to honor that family legacy from Grace's side. I was not a Christian when we met. She bought me a Bible. Her and her dad went out and bought me a Bible. Technically, I guess you could say it was a gift from the Trinity Church. I became a Christian reading that Bible. I started preaching and teaching from that Bible. That church was the first church that I ever had the honor of preaching a sermon in. And when her dad passed away, I preached his funeral uh, from the Bible that was given to me from their family in the Trinity Church. And so we felt it was just a way to honor uh, her family legacy and history. And if you come from a Christian family that has served Jesus, we want you to honor that as well. And, and if you don't come from a family that loves and serves Jesus, we want you to be the beginning of that legacy so, so that your kids and grandkids can carry forth your service of Jesus. Uh, in addition to our name, here's our team. This kind of explains it, but it's from the website. The ministry of the Trinity Church is ruled by God. And what I like to say is we're ruled from the throne down, not the pew up, meaning our first goal is to ask, Lord, what do you want? God, what do you, what do you want from us? And, and sometimes people walk into the church and the question that they ask is, can I get what I want? And the answer is, well, we should all ask, will he get what he wants? That's really the issue. And so for us, we want to say, uh, learning God's will for us comes from the scriptures. It comes from prayer. It comes from wise counsel, all informed and directed by the Holy Spirit. And so for us, the first goal of all leaders should be to seek God's will for us as a people. So we're uh, ruled by God, uh, go back, uh, influenced by wise counsel. What this means is we acknowledge that we don't know everything and we've got a lot to learn, starting with myself. And so what we choose are people who love the Lord and serve the Lord and are fruitful in their life and family and ministry. And we look to them for leadership. And so they give us counsel and instruction. And so for us, um, this is pastors, most of whom are older and they're pastors to Grace and I and our family. So that as we seek to love and serve you along with the other leaders in this church, that we also have pastors that we're accountable to, we're under the authority of, and we're in relationship with. And it's wise counsel. And it means as we go to figure out how to do certain ministries, we'll go to other churches and leaders that are successful and we'll say, we need to learn from you. Could you help us? And they've agreed to do so. And we're very, very grateful for that. Um, in addition, uh, go, there we go. Uh, influenced by wise counsel, governed by a board. Uh, church is a legal entity. It's called a 501c3 not-for-profit designation. And Romans 13 says to obey the governing authorities. And there are certain laws for religious organizations like ours. And so we do have a governing board that does what they would call fiduciary responsibilities, okay? 
Okay, you can wake up now. That was a nice little nap. But fiduciary responsibilities basically means that they're legally responsible for the church. We own property, we make decisions, and all of this needs to be done in a way that is legal and in accordance with the law and, and above board. And, and the governing board oversees that. Led by the senior pastor, that's my honor to lead and feed run by the staff, and so this is a church that will be run by the staff members and carried out by members on mission. We call that Team Trinity, and I'll explain that largely this week and next. And it also means just practically that when it came to articles of corporation and all of you know the structure of the church, there's a law firm that handles that. When it comes to our finances, all of that is handled by an accounting firm. We don't cut checks. We don't set our own salary. We don't have access to the money. Everything is set up in a way that is, you know, very orderly and put together very intentionally. And I hope that would give you some comfort for how we do things here. Um, our communication, if, uh, if you visit the trinitychurch.com, and how cool was that, that that domain was available, right? That just happened to be there. You could sign up for our weekly newsletter. That's our external communication, kind of lets you know everything that is going on. And uh, something called the Trinity Loop, it's part of software called Church Community Builder. If you fill out a visitor card, we'll invite you to that. This is how we sign up our kids for kids ministry. This is how we'll start organizing our small groups. So what this will allow us to do is to communicate with you a little more internally, you know, about particulars of serving and serve teams and kids ministry and all of that. And so if you haven't filled out a visitor card, please, please do so. And that'll begin that process for you. Um, Team Trinity is really what we're calling uh, the equivalent of our membership and leadership. And that is a four-class process. Uh, week one is this week. Weeks two will be next week. And the goal is to be running this every week of the year. So first Sunday of the month, class one. Second Sunday of the month, class two. You can take them in any order. And the goal will be to let you know who God is and who we are and help you discover who you are and what God has for you in your life. And so I would say as well that everybody's welcome, including teenage kids. And we don't want to have a bunch of pipelines and processes for leadership. We want to all be working from the same understanding on the same mission. And what that means is that even your kids are welcome and my kids will be involved as well. So week one this week is about receiving God's love. Uh, week two will be about enjoying a new life. Uh, weeks three and four will transition from more of a lecture to a workshop, understanding yourself and others. How has God made you? What are your spiritual gifts, your natural talents, your personality? Like, how did God make you? And then week four is making a difference together. What does God have for you insofar as life and ministry together goes? And we want to help you discover that. And so that being said, that's where we find ourselves um, this week. And if you've got a, uh, a Bible, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, verses 1 through 11, where we learn about receiving God's love. And as you're finding that place in your Bible, let me ask you this question. Who, who comes to mind when you consider on the earth human beings the people that have loved you the most and the best? Okay. Think about that. I can memorize a little boy. I knew my mom loved me. I knew my grandpa George loved me. Today, obviously, my wife, my kids, my parents... There are people that have loved us so well that they have absolutely helped alter and transform our life. That actually the people who love you the most, those are the most powerful, influential, significant people in your whole life. That, that love is so powerful that it actually changes us. Amen? And, and so today when we're talking about receiving God's love, Paul is going to say, I want to remind you of some things. It's because we can forget some things. 
We can forget that God loves us. We can forget that God pursues us. We can forget that God forgives us. We can forget that God doesn't give up on us. We can forget those things. And so he wants to remind us. And so what I would submit to you is that knowing that God loves you is something that you need to remind yourself all the time. Knowing that God loves you through the person and work of Jesus Christ is something that we need to be reminded of all the time. And as we uh, sort of plant the stake at the center of the church spiritually, everything orbits around the love of God is demonstrated in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, and so we'll jump right in to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, uh, verses 1 through 11. This was probably an early church creed, something that they reminded themselves of. And so his first point is that we believe in gospel preaching. 1 Corinthians 15, 1, this is the Apostle Paul. Now I would remind you, again, this issue of reminding. There are times that the scripture reminds us of things we already know. Sometimes we need to know new things. Sometimes we just need to remember old things that we already knew because perhaps we've forgotten them or we're not fully appreciating them. This struck me not long ago. I was talking to a man. Uh, he married his high school sweetheart. They were married for around 50 years. They totally love each other, best friends. And he said that when he would get home from work, he would look at her and he would say, I love you. And she would say, and I love you. Okay, and now 50 years later, she got Alzheimer's. And so she doesn't remember him. And she's in a care facility and he goes to see her and he sees her every day, and he says, I love you. She doesn't say anything. And he looked at me, and he said, uh, he said, Mark, every time someone says that they love you, it's a significant moment. He said, there were days that my wife would tell me she loved me, and I'd be not really paying much attention, or just, yeah, I've heard that before. He said, I just wish I could hear it again. But she doesn't remember him. Every time God says he loves you, it's a significant moment. It's something that we need to remind ourselves all the time. And the good news is that God tells us he loves us and he shows us that he loves us and he will through all eternity. And it's something that is to be significant and fresh for us every single time. Right? How many of you can remember the first time you fell in love with your spouse, let's say, and you told one another that you loved one another, that that kind of love that God has for us and we have for God, it's, it's sacred, it's significant, and it's fresh every moment. Paul says, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. And so the gospel is to be preached, and I have the great honor of doing a lot of the preaching and teaching here, and I'm honored to do so. And here's my pledge and vow to you, that if you bring people to the Trinity Church, I will preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'll tell them about God's love in Jesus. So bring your family, friends, neighbors, coworkers, definitely go get your enemies. They really need Jesus. Bring them, and we'll talk to them about Jesus. And what he's talking about here is the gospel. And what that literally means is good news. And I want to differentiate this. Our world is filled with good advice. Lots of good advice. Do this, don't do that. Seven steps, 12 steps, 13 steps, five steps, two steps to more successful, victorious, triumphant, accomplished living. Good advice is not necessarily bad. It's not all good, but it's not necessarily bad. But good advice tells you what you need to do. What we're talking about here is not just good advice, we're talking about good news. Good news doesn't just tell you what to do, it tells you what God has done for you. Because there are certain things that we can't fix. There are certain things that we can't do. I can't look at you and give you a list and say, well, here's how you forgive all your sins, reconcile yourself to God, resurrect from the dead, and enjoy eternal life. Four steps. What I could tell you is this is what God has done because it's something that we can't do. 
It's something that God doesn't give us a list of things for us to accomplish. He gives us the list of things that Jesus has accomplished. That's what makes it good news. And so for us, we do believe that life has a lot of good advice, but what distinguishes the Bible and the central message of the Bible is it really is good news about who God is and what he's done, not just good advice about us and what we have left to do. And some of you have lived under a lot of burden and expectations and, and people have told you, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. You need to start by understanding this is what Jesus has done. And then living your life in light of the good news of the gospel of what Jesus has done. And the good news of the, of the gospel is this, that, that we have a problem, but that ultimately God has provided a solution. And sometimes we can move beyond this, so he's going to remind us of this, and that is that God is holy, we are sinful, that God is creator, we are created, that God made us, and we've rebelled against him, we've turned our back on him, we've walked away from him, and, and that is the bad news, but the good news is that God loves us, and he has a plan to seek us, and to save us, and to rescue us, and to serve us, and to forgive us, so he sends us his son, Jesus Christ, and that's where the rest of 1 Corinthians 15 is going to go, that there is a problem, but unlike like religion that says, therefore, go earn the solution. Jesus comes to provide the solution as a gift to us all. So the next point that he tells us is we believe in heaven and hell. And he talks about the gospel, which you have received. Right? So learning about Jesus is something that you need to personally receive. Uh, if your parents receive Jesus, that's great, but you need to receive Jesus. If your spouse received Jesus, that's great, but you need to receive Jesus. You receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and you stand in it. This means it's a lifestyle. It's a commitment. This is who I am. This is where I am. This is what I'm doing. Okay. This is a commitment. This is a devotion. This is not just a one-time decision, but it's a lifetime of devotion um, uh, by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. And this issue of saved is an important one. What it means is that that, that human beings are in this dangerous, precarious position. Right? When you hear that someone's been rescued, well, it obviously indicates they were in peril. And a, a firefighter or a soldier or a police officer or a parent or someone showed up to, to save them, to be the savior, to rescue them, to deliver them from their peril. Well, the Bible presents the storyline of humanity that we are in peril, that we have walked away from God toward death, that we have turned from God toward self-destruction, if you will, and that God has come on a rescue mission. He sent his son to be our savior so that we would be saved from hell, that we would be saved from death, that we would be saved from sin, and that we'd be saved from ourselves and our own foolish decisions and the self-destruction that we would bring upon our own lives apart from God's intervention. And all of that is entailed in this concept of saved. And it's interesting because we live in a world where most people believe in heaven, but very few people believe in hell. And the Bible talks about both, and Jesus talks about both, and we believe that we are saved from hell to heaven, from Satan to God, from sin to forgiveness, from death to life, from condemnation to salvation. That's what we believe. And what he's saying is that, that this is the most important information in the world, that all other information is perhaps important, but nothing rises to this level of first importance. And so he continues and he says, uh, not only do we believe in heaven and hell, we also believe that the Bible is about Jesus' death and resurrection. So um, I don't want to presume or assume anything, but let me start by saying that this is, this is God's word. This is the Bible. 
and it's 66 books written by some 40 authors over the course of a few thousand years. The Old Testament was primarily in the language of Hebrew, New Testament primarily in Greek, and there were some sections as well in Aramaic, and we've had the great honor of having it translated into English. And, uh, and this, is a, this is the best-selling book in the history of the world. Um, there is nothing like this book that has the far-reaching, long-lasting, life-changing, eternity-altering power. But the question is, what's the main idea in this whole book? And, and I would say, uh, firstly, it's not a bunch of stories. It's one story primarily. And everyone and everything in the scriptures is part of this overarching story about the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so let me say this, when it comes to, when it comes to the Bible, this book is for you, but it's not primarily about you. The big difference. Okay, it's for you, absolutely, but it's not primarily about you. So if you go to the Bible and you ask, what does this say about me? Well, that's not the first or most important thing. The first and most important thing is what does it say about God? That's actually where the book begins. In the beginning, God. So that, that's, that's, that's the centerpiece of the scriptures is who God is. And so when the Lord Jesus came to the earth and he's a teacher, they called him a rabbi. I'll give you a couple ways that Jesus taught the Bible. Jesus said that the whole Bible was about him. Yeah, that's what he said. So in Matthew 5, 17, he says, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, I've come to fulfill them. Um, he says in John chapter five, he's arguing with religious people. And religious people sometimes have a real problem with Jesus, they always have. But he's arguing with the religious people, or I should say that they're arguing with him. And he says, you diligently study the scriptures. Now you need to know that these people really studied the Old Testament. Uh, some of the people he was talking to may have memorized whole books of the Old Testament in the language of Hebrew. How many of you have not done that and don't have it on your bucket list? Like, I'm not memorizing whole books of the Old Testament in Hebrew. So they, they were really devoted to studying the scriptures, yet Jesus rebukes them. He says, you diligently study the scriptures, thinking that in them you have eternal life, yet you fail to understand that the scriptures testify about me. Here's what Jesus is saying. You don't know your Bible. Like, we don't, we're, the, we're the Bible teachers. You don't know your Bible. You can, you can know your Bible, but you don't understand your Bible unless you know Jesus. Here's the point. You don't know your Bible if you don't know Jesus. You don't know your Bible if you don't know Jesus. So Jesus tells him, you know the Bible, but you don't know me. You really don't know your Bible. And then after his resurrection from death in Luke chapter 24, at the end of that great gospel, it says that Jesus held some Bible studies and he walked them through the whole Old Testament showing how the entire Old Testament was really ultimately about him. So, we believe that this is God's word and we believe that the message of God's word is ultimately the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's how he says it. 1 Corinthians 15, three and four. For I delivered to you of first importance. So you think about all the information available on the earth today. Every book you could read, blog, social media post, movie you could watch, right? Library you could visit. Just think of all the information you could go take a class and take notes in the lecture, everything you could learn. All of that information, there's one fact that rises above it all. It's of first importance, most important thing in the whole world. This is astonishing insofar as the claim goes. First importance, he says, what I also received. And what he's saying is that when it comes to the teaching about Jesus and the God of the Bible and the love of God and the forgiveness of sins, what Paul is saying is this is not something that I created or made up. He's saying something was revealed by God, received, and then passed on to me, and I pass it on to you. Here's the point. Um, Christianity needs messengers, not editors. 
Okay? When God tells us something in the scriptures, he wants us to be messengers, not editors. He wants us to take what he said and repeat it, not alter it. We live in a day when a lot of people wanna be God's editors, not God's messengers. What they receive, they wanna change. So you end up with new kinds of Christianity or false teaching or strange doctrines. And ultimately we are part of a great legacy of faith that goes all the way back to the Old Testament, goes all the way forward into the kingdom of God. And we are to receive the truth of the Bible and we are to preserve it. And then we are to hand it off to the next generation. That's what he's saying. Um, so just, if you're here and you're, you're new, no, we're a new church, but we're not a new religion, amen? amen? We're Christians, we love Jesus, we believe the Bible. We have one wife, very simple, that's how we do it here, okay? Um, uh, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, the Bible, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Scripture, scriptures, what is he talking about? What he's talking about is what's the big idea of the Bible? And what he's saying is that the center of the Bible is Jesus and the whole Bible makes sense when it's connected to the person work of Jesus, when he really is the center from which all understanding emanates and everyone and everything is related and connected to. So ultimately it's about Jesus Christ, the second member of the Trinity, God becomes a man but not only that, it's not that Jesus is just a good example, that he really is our savior and substitute. And he says that Christ died. And so now we're into the death of Jesus. So Jesus lives without sin. He says that he is without sin. He feeds the hungry. He loves the outcast. He befriends the marginalized and he welcomes children. And they didn't kill him for any of those things. The reason that Jesus was put to death is because he openly, publicly, repeatedly, emphatically, and unapologetically said he was God. And, and as a result, the political leaders were opposed to him because he was putting himself above the government and the religious leaders were opposed to him because he was saying he was God. So they had false witnesses falsely testify against him. He was run through a series of false trials and it was all done under the cover of night because this was not a credible trial. This was actually just simply a, a murder. They then took Jesus and had him beaten and his beard plucked out. And the Bible says that they took and had him flogged. And this is where they would extend a man's back um, and he would be beaten with something called a flagrum or a cat of nine tails. It was a handle, had straps of leather that proceeded from it. They would have a ball on the end that would tenderize the man's back like you would a steak. Hooks made out of metal or bone would have been at the end. They would have hooked into the man's back as he was oftentimes chained to a post or over a rock. And then they would literally rip the flesh off the man's body. Many men simply died from the flogging. The Bible says that he endured a sleepless night. He's hungry, he's dehydrated. He is beaten, he is flogged. And then they take what was most likely a Roman crossbar weighing upwards of 100 pounds and they put it on his raw back and they make him carry it through town so that people can spit on him and mock him and, and they can make fun and sport and light of him. The Bible says that on a few occasions, Jesus fell. I mean, you can imagine how depleted and exhausted he was physically. This is what we did to God. The God who never said or did anything wrong. And he falls and the doctors will tell you that that's the equivalent of a chest contusion that only happens in a car wreck in a head-on collision at a high speed without a seatbelt. That all of a sudden you've got a contusion to the chest cavity and that all of a sudden blood is starting to leak and breathing becomes strained. 
Jesus then carries his cross to his place of crucifixion. He was a carpenter who drove many nails and they take nails that are equivalent perhaps of like railroad ties and spikes and they nail him to the Roman cross through the most sensitive nerve centers, the human hands and feet. And then Jesus is lifted up and there present is his mother. And all of this was done openly, publicly and shamefully. And this, so you know, was a form of state-sponsored terror and it was their way of saying, whatever he believed or however he behaved, if you were one of his followers, you stop following right now or the same fate is awaiting you. And this, is, this is ancient terror. This is ancient terrorism. Okay? And we know that Jesus died. Before he died, he says amazing things like, Father, forgive them. All Jesus does from the cross is love. That's all he does. I mean, you just think of yourself in that moment. What you and I would say would probably be something other than forgive them, amen? Yeah. Especially if I was God who can call down a legion of angels to destroy all my enemies. And he had such self-restraint and such selfless love that then he declared, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. The father turned his back on the son. And in that moment, you need to know that Jesus took our place. Martin Luther called this the great exchange. That God took our place. The Lord Jesus Christ took our place and he put us in his place. So he went to death that we might have life. He went to condemnation that we might have salvation. He experienced separation so that we might experience reconciliation. He took our unrighteousness and he gave us his righteousness. Jesus took our place and he put us in his place. And then we know that he died. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last to guarantee and assure that he was dead. An executioner ran a spear underneath his ribcage into his heart sack, conch, uh, rather bursting his heart so that water and blood flowed from his side. Jesus was then, and I tell you that because oftentimes we hear Christ died for your sins or Jesus died for you. And we sort of move rather quickly which is, is all true. But in that day, they actually would have seen crucifixion and we don't see it, so sometimes we don't fully understand it. In the day that Spartacus fell in battle, 6,000 Roman soldiers, uh, or 6,000 soldiers rather, were, were crucified along the, the side of a Roman highway. This was done in open public places like grocery stores and malls. When Jesus was a little boy, there was a Jewish uprising that was put down by a mass crucifixion. He may have actually witnessed it. So in their day, they observe these things. And in our day, we don't often see these things. And we need to be reminded of God's love for us in the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, that he did that for us. Because that's what it says. Christ died for, very important word, for us, for our sins. If you wonder whether God loves you, look to the cross of Jesus. He loves you. He did love you, he does love you, he will love you. And there is no greater demonstration of love on the earth than the crucifixion of Jesus for our sins. Okay, so he said Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. The Old Testament prophesied this hundreds and thousands of years in advance that he was buried. So he was taken to the tomb of a rich man named Joseph of Arimathea, who post-mortem gifted him his tomb. Jesus was wrapped in upwards of maybe a hundred pounds of burial linens and spices, that his body was put in a tomb, no water, no medical care. He's very dead. He's there for a few days, as was predicted and prophesied. 
A Roman soldier is stationed there. The, the, the rock is put over the front entrance of the tomb. The Roman seal is affixed to it so that no one can tamper with it without being in violation of governmental decree. And everybody knows that Jesus is dead and everybody knows where Jesus is buried. And as was the case, people came to visit his graveside as happens with those who are loved. And lo and behold, the stone is gone. There are his burial clothes. And an angel says, he's left. Right? That's, that's the story, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. That is, in fact, a Sunday. That's why uh, the first Jewish Christians stopped worshiping on Saturday, their traditional Sabbath, started worshiping on Sunday because Jesus ushers us into a whole new reality and a whole new world in accordance with the scriptures. Well, this is shocking because our big problem is death. And death is the result of being separated from God. And I, I know, I know, each of you has very significant problems in your life, but there's one problem that's the biggest problem of all and all the other problems pale in comparison. And that is if you're separated from God and destined toward hell, that's the biggest problem you've got. And Jesus comes to take care of that problem. He lives the life we've not lived, the life without sin. He dies the death we should have died, the death for sin, and he rises to conquer death and to forgive sin. And Jesus is the only one who does that. No one else offers this. This is not the good advice of what you can do to please God or pay him back. This is the good news of what God has done to pay himself back through the sacrifice and the resurrection of his son. And so for Christians, this is why for us, the cross became the symbol of our faith. Early on, Christians had to decide sort of what's our symbol? They thought, well, maybe the dove, that's where the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus' baptism and other things were considered. But ultimately, beginning, I believe, with the church father Tertullian, they chose the cross. They started making the sign of the cross and affixing the cross to their homes. And all of a sudden they started singing about and thinking about the cross because it was at the cross where the love of God is seen. It's at the cross where sin is forgiven. It's at the cross where God embraces me. It's at the cross where God's wrath is diverted from me. And so I'm really happy at the Trinity Church. We got a lot of crosses. There's a huge cross on top. You can see it from the freeway, which I'm pretty fired up about. In addition, <laughs> we found the old cross that was on the top and we put it right out front. So you just literally walk by the cross and on your way in when you see the cross remember that men were generally crucified at eye level when they would crucify a woman they would often turn her around because they didn't want to see her face but when you walk by the cross just think man Jesus died for me God loves me my sins are forgiven my eternity is taken care of whatever problems I got the big problem has been taken care of thank you Jesus and we've got one other big cross we found, and it's actually 4,000 years old. The tree goes all the way back to the time of Abraham. We're going to put it in the front entry. So you're going to go through three crosses before we even get in here. And that's just our big idea. Like Jesus loves you. Jesus died for you. Jesus forgives you. Jesus has gone before you. Jesus has prepared a place for you. He did die, but he's not dead. He's alive. All is well. And one day you will rise to be with him forever if you belong to him. Amen? Amen? We call that good news. We call that good news. Now, we show this as Christians with communion and baptism. And so communion is something that we do every Sunday at the Trinity Church starting today. Okay, a lot of firsts today. And the bread and the wine are to remind us of Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, at the Passover celebration, which was a Jewish feast and festival, Jesus sat down with his disciples and he broke from a few thousand years of tradition. And he said, this bread is my body broken for you. 
This wine is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We call it the Lord's table or communion. Um, he said that we should continue to do this to remember him. So when we partake of communion, remembering God became a man in a body and he shed his own blood in my place for my sins. And then there's also the Christian ceremony of baptism. And in baptism, remember that Jesus lived, he died and was buried and he rose. And as Jesus rose from death, so too, I will rise from death because I belong to Jesus. And as water cleanses me from filth, so Jesus cleanses me from the filth of sin. So our two major sacraments, uh, communion and baptism, they both point to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Again, we're driving the stake in the center of the church spiritually today. And baptism and communion are the ways that we remind ourselves that ultimately the storyline of the Bible is all about Jesus. In addition, we believe in loving relationships. 1 Corinthians 15, five through seven says, after his death, burial, resurrection, he, Jesus, appeared to Cephas. That guy's name originally you know, is Cephas and then Jesus changes it to Peter. Okay, let me ask you a trick question. Was Peter a good friend to Jesus? Yes, no, yes. That's how friendships work, amen? All right. Yes, he was a friend of Jesus. And then when Jesus was going to be crucified, Peter said, I don't know him. Peter denied him, sort of abandoned him. And then after the resurrection, Jesus goes and finds Peter. And they have this conversation. Jesus forgave him. Jesus loved him. Jesus is all about reconciling relationships, forgiving and loving people. That's what Jesus does. Jesus didn't just rise from death and then go to heaven. He spent 40 days with his friends and his family, loving relationships. Then to the 12, those are his apostles and disciples and, and everyone except for Judas Iscariot, who was a pretend friend that betrayed Jesus and took his own life. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time. How many of you have heard that, that the resurrection of Jesus was a hallucination? Okay. Okay. Some of you, you have hallucinated, right? And you shouldn't have, but how many of you, the hallucination was a private event, not a public event. When 500 people see something, it's not a hallucination, it's an event, okay? A hallucination is something that just happens in your mind. When 500 people at a singular time are witnesses to it, that's an event. So Jesus' resurrection was not off in the corner of history. There were no witnesses. What we're talking about with the resurrection of Jesus is that Christianity is not just spiritual speculation, it's a historical revelation, it's a fact. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose. How do we know? Well, 500 people saw it and he says that most of them were alive and the eyewitnesses are happy to testify. They're like, we had breakfast with him. And I would tell you as well that in the days of Jesus, the tombs of holy men and women tended to be enshrined and people would go there. They'd leave cards and candles and flowers, just like today. If someone you know dies, you love them, you go visit the graveside and you sort of leave a memorial. Well, Jesus' grave was not memorialized because people didn't go there. The reason they didn't go there is because Jesus wasn't there. After he rose from death, you wouldn't go to his grave, you'd go into town and you'd have breakfast with him. And that's exactly what people did. He hugged people, people would run up and see the scars in his hands and his feet. And, is that really you? Yeah, it's really me. And he conquered death. No one has ever done this. The great equalizer, no matter how rich you are, how famous you are, how powerful you are, how successful you are, or how smart you are, death comes for us all. It's the one thing we can't conquer. And Jesus conquered it. He says, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at a time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The Bible's language for a Christian who dies is they take a really long nap. Okay. 
I can still remember when Grace's dad died, um, Pastor Gibb, he was in his 80s. We all went to the hospital. He was in his deathbed. We prayed, we sang, but we knew that we knew that we knew that he knew Jesus. And we knew that we knew that we knew that when he closed his eyes on this earth, that he would see Jesus and he would be in the presence of Jesus. He would be fully healed. All of his pain and suffering would be over, that his faith would be made sight, that his joy would be made complete. And we knew that one day we would be with him in the presence of Jesus forever. And so the body goes into the ground, the soul goes to be with the Lord until the resurrection of the dead, like the resurrection of Jesus. And then the body and the soul are rejoined in eternity. The worst thing, friend, is not dying. The worst thing is dying without knowing Jesus. And if you know Jesus, when you die, it's kind of like just a long, long nap. Then he appeared to James, which is his brother. How many of you would have a hard time getting your brother to worship you as Lord God, Creator, King, Savior, and Christ? How many of you are the little brother or little sister? And you realize, boy, I tell you, if my, if my older brother showed up with a crown on his head and telling us to write worship songs to him, that would not go well in our family. If he started making declarations like, I am without sin, you among you cast the first stone, my family would be looking for the rock pile because we all grew up with him. We know what kind of person he is. I'm the oldest of five kids. My brothers love me, would not worship me. Jesus' brother James was a devout Jewish believer. His family was a devout Jewish family. How many of you grew up in a devout family or devout Jewish family? You realize, you know, it's not like America where you just pick a God. We treat spirituality like a salad bar at a casino. Oh, I'll take a little Jesus, give me a little, you know, reincarnation, sprinkle on a little Allah, you know, and we sort of, we sort of put together our own buffet of spirituality. In that day, there was God and Satan. There was there was heaven and hell, there was life and death, and you're in or you're out. And you don't just change religions because you get disowned by your family and you ruin your eternity. Well, what's really interesting is Jesus' mother was a virgin and she had Jesus and then she consummated her relationship with her husband. The Bible says they went on to have sons and daughters, pretty big family, and that Jesus' own brothers, James, goes on to write a book of the Bible called James. His other brother, Jude, goes on to write another book of the Bible called Jude. And his family says he's without sin and worships him as God. Okay, I would say that's strong evidence that it's a fact. Okay, including his mother, Mary, who was part of the early church in the opening chapters of Acts. She is there with God's people, worshiping her son as God. And then to all the apostles, his friends who knew him best. And after seeing Jesus crucified... Why in the world would they devote their lives to saying that Jesus was God, lived without sin, died and rose if it were not true? The burden of proof to me is always on the other side. Well, why would they lie about this? What did they get? They got murdered. That's not a real benefit. They didn't get fame or fortune. They got torture and murder. And so as a result, Paul is making this case that Jesus really did live, he really did die, he really did rise, that if we're driving the proverbial stake in human history around which everyone and everything rotates, it has to be the person and the work of Jesus. And so we believe in loving relationships and Jesus pursues them with family and friends. And it is our hope that this would be a place where loving relationships would form. And part of that is gonna be in groups as we form them and scatter them, Lord willing, across the whole valley so that, so that you can be in relationship with people and that Jesus can teach you to love and forgive one another and to do life together because that's what he makes possible and that's what he demonstrates. Um, in addition, uh, Paul goes on to say, we believe in transformed lives and legacies. He says, last of all, 1 Corinthians 8 through the first half of verse 10, 
As to one untimely board, he appeared to me also. For I'm the least of the apostles, Paul says, put me at the bottom of the org chart, unworthy to be called an apostle, a leader, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the, the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. We believe in transformed lives. Paul is an example of an amazingly transformed life. He's one of the most significant people in the history of the world, and he started out not as a Christian, but a persecutor of Christians, not as a pastor, but a murderer. We find him early in the book of Acts where he is a zealous, motivated, devoted, religious young leader. He assembles a mob of angry, violent, young religious men. They are out harassing Christians, dragging them out of their home, having Christians arrested, beaten. I mean, here's a guy who literally would go to your house if he saw a cross on the door, knock on it. If you answered, he would drag the man out in front of the women and children. An angry mob of men would give him a beating to make him a lesson. That's Paul. His name was Saul, and then his name was changed to Paul. And the Bible records that they were on their way. Uh, they were the equivalent of like a terror cell in their day. This is like ISIS or Al-Qaeda. If these guys are coming, it's just to destroy and cause harm. They're an angry, violent mob of religious people who believe that God has designated them to go harm others. They're, they're terrifying. And the Bible records in Acts that, uh, that he... He comes across a man named Stephen who's an early church deacon and that this angry mob of men drop their cloaks at his feet showing that he is the leader and they go to murder Stephen the deacon. And as they're murdering Stephen the deacon, De deacon Stephen, he echoes the words of Jesus from the cross and he prays for the forgiveness of Saul. The Bible says that his face shone like an angel and that he looked up into heaven and that Stephen saw Jesus standing. In the Bible, Jesus is usually standing uh, on the earth, but he's usually sitting in heaven on a throne. And apparently by praying for his enemy and forgiving his enemy, he got a standing ovation from Jesus. If you want Jesus, if you want Jesus to stand up, forgive someone and pray for their salvation, especially the people that have wounded you the deepest. And then he dies and Stephen goes to be with the Lord Jesus. And then Jesus comes down to deal with Saul. Jesus actually comes down somehow from heaven, knocks Saul off his horse, blinds him, speaks to him. Saul all of a sudden becomes converted. And the early Christians, it's reported, they were a little reticent to believe that he became a Christian. Uh, yeah, Saul says he got saved. He wants to come to our prayer meeting. And he says, everybody close your eyes. Like, no, no, no. He can't come to the prayer meeting. And I'm praying with one eye open if he does show up. I don't trust that guy. Oh, come on, Bin Laden wants to join the prayer circle. No, 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 no. They were very afraid. They were concerned, rightly so, amen? Like, did this guy change? But you know what? He was, he was transformed. He was forever transformed. He becomes a pastor. He becomes someone who loves people, doesn't harm people. He brings life, not death. He's gonna die for Christians. He's not gonna kill Christians. Paul's life stands as this amazing testimony of what God can do in anyone's life, and it should give us all hope. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, God can love you, forgive you, and he can transform your life. Amen. He does that. And I guarantee you, you're not too bad. If there's room for Paul, there's room for us all. Furthermore, it changes his legacy. A couple thousand years later, we're still talking about this guy, and it, we're part of his legacy. And so for you, God wants to change your life through Jesus and he wants to change your legacy. That would include your family, your friends, and all who you would influence through the course of your life.
And this is what we mean by eternal life. It's not just life that begins when we die. It's life that begins when we meet Jesus and it's fully culminated when we die. But it's an eternal quality of life where God comes to take up residence in us and do a work through us so that others would come to know Jesus and experience life changes. He has given it to us all by grace. It's a gift that God cares for us and he loves us and he serves us, not because we deserve it, but because he is loving. That's the whole point. So when we boast, we boast in Jesus. When we rejoice, we rejoice in Jesus. And then he, um, he concludes by saying that we believe in making a difference together. 1 Corinthians 15, 10 and 11. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. You don't work hard for your salvation, but you work hard from your salvation, okay? That Jesus does all the work to save you and his work is for you, his work is in you, and his work is through you because Jesus works with you. Um, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live a totally different life. You can become a totally different person who, who is operating under a completely different power source. That's what he's saying. By the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. And what Paul is saying is not only has God saved him, God has sent him with a meaningful, purposeful, valuable life of ministry. And so ultimately the whole point for our concept of Team Trinity, and this is week one, we'll hit week two next week, is we want you to know who God is, we want you to know who you are, and then we want your life to be transformed. And together we want you to learn what God has for you so that together we can make a difference so that more people hear about, learn about, know about Jesus. And so the big point is that ultimately, this is the book that God wrote. And it's not just speculation, it's revelation. It's not just what someone thinks about God, but it's about what God tells us regarding his son, Jesus. And the big storyline of the Bible is that God knows you and God loves you and God seeks you and God saves you. And the center point of the scriptures and the center point of history and the center point of our church is Jesus. That's why we love him so much. That's why every time that the Bible says that God loves us, it's a significant sacred moment that we need to pause and say, that is amazing that the creator of heaven and earth, the sustainer of all things, the one who knows my past, present, and future, the one who is holy and sees me as I am. He loves me. He forgives me. He seeks me. He serves me. He saves me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. He's not ashamed of me. He's not going to punish me and he's not done with me. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus. And so there's the introduction to what we believe. And if you have further questions, here's where you can go. You can go to our website. You'll find our doctrinal statement. Um, if you want, I'll send you a free ebook that includes a lot of theological instruction to help you. If you want to get a good Bible to read and you don't have one, grab something called the ESV Study Bible. That's the one that we tend to like and love and use here. If you've never been baptized and you need to be baptized, let us know that so that on one of the Sundays that works for you, we can go ahead and baptize you so you can tell others publicly about Jesus. And I'm gonna pray. Father, thank you for an opportunity to teach today. 
about the person and the work of Jesus. And Lord God, today, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we drive that stake into the spiritual center of our church saying that, that the center is Jesus, the good news of the love of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord God, if there are any here and they don't yet know Jesus, I pray that they would come to know Jesus right now, that they would give him their sin and their burden, that they would receive his salvation and forgiveness. For those of us, Lord God, who are Christian, would you please continually remind us of who Jesus is and remind us of what Jesus does. And Jesus, we ask for continued transformation of our lives and legacies, and we ask for the strength and well-being of our church. In Jesus' good name, amen.